Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com, and we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com slash Changelog. Move fast and fix things like we do here at Changelog. Catch your errors before your users do with Rollbar. If you're not using Rollbar yet or you haven't tried it yet, they have a special offer for you. Go to Rollbar.com slash Changelog. Sign up and integrate Rollbar to get $100 to donate to open source projects via Open Collective. Once again, Rollbar.com slash Changelog. Welcome back. You are listening to the Change Logo podcast featuring the hackers, the leaders, and the innovators of software development. I'm Adam Stakoviak, editor in chief here at ChangeLog. Today, Jared and I are talking to Manish Jain about DGraph, graph databases, licensing, and relicensing woes. Manish is the creator and founder of DGraph. We talk through all the details, what a graph database is, the uses of a graph database, and how and when to choose a graph database over a relational database. We also talked through the hard subject of licensing and relicensing. In this case, DGraph has had to change their license a few times to maintain their focus on adoption while respecting the core ideas of what open source really means. So we have a two-pronged episode, two for the price of one today, and uh, the and the price of one is zero or free. So uh, really, really lucking out. Uh, we're here to talk uh, first about DGraph, and which is the world's most advanced graph database according to DGraph.io. And then we also are going to talk about some licensing and some relicensing woes, some of the stuff that open source developers and popular projects have to go through, but are kind of the Kind of the difficult, weedy, like, how do we do this? How do we relicense if we change our mind? And uh, Manesh has done all that with DGraph. It's gone through a few different iterations of licensing. And so he's here to tell us that story. So uh, Manesh, thanks for coming on the changelog. Thanks for having me, guys. And we should probably give a shout out to Ping because this is an episode that started in Ping. If you've never heard of our Ping repo, it's on GitHub at the changelog slash Ping. Hop in there, uh, give us your thoughts on what shows we should do. Uh, this one was actually opened up by an epic transcriber, Horst Rudder. Adam, you know Horst. Yes. He has been uh, faithfully transcribing our, or uh, not transcribing, but fixing our transcripts, improving our transcripts. The uh, unintelligibles for... are missing, or missing when it's unintelligible. Horst right. loves to go in there and correct it. He has done a ton, and we appreciate that. And he was interested in hearing about some of the decisions and some of the process of how you change your license from one to another. And then um, a follow-up to that was Vespertilian. Well, that was bad. Vespertilian, a.k.a. Cameron, which is probably the real name, who pointed us at DGraph as a user of DGraph and one who had watched the Common Clause license and the uh, Apache 2.0 and the AGPL and all of this over the last, I don't know, six to eight months happening over at DGraph, he said that uh, this would be a good project to kind of focus on that conversation. So thanks to those two 
for being a part of our community and thanks for suggesting this and getting us hooked up Manesh. So with that out of the way, Manesh, let's talk about DGRAP. Tell us about this project, uh, where it came from, how long it's been around, what you're, what you're up to with it. Sure. Uh, maybe I can start with uh, my own journey um, a bit before I get into DGRAP. Uh, so I used to work at Google uh, in Mountain View, California for six and a half years working in the web search uh, infrastructure team where we were dealing with real-time distributed systems. Um, in fact, we built an incremental indexing system uh, and launched that in 2010, got an OC award for it. Um, and basically what that did was to reduce the latency that it takes for a web page to go from the first time we crawl it to the first time a user sees on google.com um, from four days to a few hours. So oh, wow. that was uh, the biggest uh, big table database installation at Google at the time. And, uh, you know, it gave me a lot of uh, uh, sort of freedom to work on real-time distributed systems. Now, back in uh, 2010, after we launched this thing, I started looking around and seeing, hey, what else could I, could I dig, in, dig my teeth in? Um, and turns out Google had acquired uh, MetaWeb, which is uh, the company which brought Knowledge Graph to Google. So the Knowledge Graph that you hear these days came from MetaWeb. Um, and I started a couple of projects there. Um, one of the projects was to unite all structured data at Google. That was all the, what we call one boxes. So that would be weather and events and movie showtimes and flights, etc., cetera, mm. and the knowledge graph into a single graph indexing and serving system. Um, and there was a big challenge, obviously. Uh, we didn't have a graph serving system at Google. We had a web search index, uh, index serving system, but not a graph one. Um, and so um, along with a few other uh, tech leads, uh, one was in India, one was in San Francisco, and I was in Mountain View, we started this project to, uh, to build something which would be able to do arbitrary dev joins and would, be do, uh, would do traversals um, and do them in a sub uh, you know, sub-second latency. In fact, we had a limit on how much latency it can have because if the system does not respond to a web search request internally, web search would just move on and would not surface anything interesting from the knowledge graph. So I was involved in that. And uh, while building that, we, we obviously uh, put together all the research that Google had done at that time. And uh, I got to learn a lot. So I left Google in 2013, um, went, uh, moved from the US to Australia, had, had some family reasons to move. And um, around 2015, I remember being involved in a freelancing gig um, where this person is like, hey, uh, can we use a graph database? And I was like, well, the existing graph databases, they are not that good. They, they don't scale pretty well. They have uh, issues with uh, consistency. Um, and in general, I just never considered primary, primary databases. Um, and that's what triggered me to say, hey, maybe we should, we should build something which would be, which would be the, like that. I looked around. Uh, the biggest one was Neo4j, which is a single server database. Um, in fact, uh, um, um, the most popular one in the market, but uh, yeah, limited by data corruption issues and performance issues. And then there were some others which were not databases, but more like graph layers. You, know, you would think of TitanDB, Datastax DSE graph, uh, Janus graph, which are built on top of other distributed databases. So you put HBase in below it, or you put Cassandra. 
Um, and when you put a layer above, it again suffers from performance. You need to run multiple systems. So DGraph really started as a way by which we could have a native graph database, which could also scale horizontally um, and perform um, with, with a pretty tight latency. And uh, I used a lot of concepts that I learned back at Google. On top of that, while we were building it, we realized if we were to build a database, which has to be a primary database for, for big companies, it must support transactions. Mm. It must support uh, synchronous replication. Uh, it must provide linearizable reads because when you build these things into the database, applications have it a lot easier. They don't need to worry about, hey, whether I'm hitting the master or the replica, they don't have to worry about any of that. They just hit any of the servers in the cluster and they are guaranteed to get uh, the freshest response back. Um, so so that, those were the ideals that we built uh, DGraph for. It started, uh, I launched 0.1 in December 2015. We went on to raise um, uh, $3 million over the course of two years. Uh, launched 1.0 in December 2017. And uh, now we are in a place where DGraph is close to being used in production at, uh, at a few big companies. And obviously we have a huge open source community. Very cool. Well, you mentioned Neo4j just in the news yesterday. I believe they raised a Series E, the company behind Neo4j, uh, $80 million Series E. So definitely investment interest in this space. And Neo4j been around for, for quite some time. So uh, does DGraph, you said it, its advantage is that it's built for distributed from the ground up. Um, also, potentially some of the technology or the, just the timing of DGraph in terms of it starting in 2015. Can you give some of the underlying technology uh, languages or tools that you're using in the open source uh, software and uh, speak to that for us? So I'm a big fan of Go language. Um, and this was not when I was at Google. Uh, I was pretty much writing C++. Um, but after I left, um, I, Python just could never stick with me. And the moment I got to know about Go, I uh, started trying it out. And um, back in 2015, I think CockroachDB, another database company in New York, uh, they had raised a Series A. I saw their stack was Go and that immediately excited me. Um, so DGraph is written uh, purely in Go. We use uh, uh, gRPC for communication, both internal between the cluster and for external communication from a client to the cluster. Um, we were initially using uh, RocksDB as the embedded key value database uh, mm. to put our data in. Uh, but then we realized that um, when you go from Go's space to you know, C, Go, to C++, which is what RocksDB is written in, it just causes a lot of headache. Um, Go tools don't get to see the Go memory profilers, for example, do not get to see what's happening in the C land. The Go performance uh, profilers do not get to see what's happening in Sealand either. So uh, at some point after you know, much, uh, um, uh, much thought, we decided that we should just build um, a good uh, sort of RocksDB alternative in, in Go, purely in Go. And we looked at the alternatives at the time. Uh, one was BoltDB, which was a B plus tree based mm -hmm. um, key value database. And then there was uh, obviously uh, LevelDB and stuff. RocksDB was already an improvement over LevelDB. So for us, uh, that seemed like uh, not a great choice. 
BoldDB's uh, write performance, uh, and, and not just BoldDB, but in general, any B plus trees, write performance is definitely always a, a bottleneck. So we wrote something uh, which was based upon a, a new paper by University of Wisconsin Medicine, um, which what it did was, uh, you know, it took some of the negatives of LSM trees and spread it uh, by putting the keys, separating the values from the keys. So the values go into a log and the keys go into the LSM tree. And we, we based our uh, main design upon that. Um, and it took us a while to really get it right because the paper didn't talk about all the nuances involved with having a separate value log. Um, so that's something that we have been sort of perfecting over time. But uh, the end result was that uh, the performance of, of, of this thing called Badger um, it basically outperforms RocksDB uh, on a lot of use cases. Uh, it works out pretty well for us. So, so we use uh, Badger as the underlying uh, uh, embedded key value database. Very cool. One thing you mentioned earlier is you said that many people were using graph databases not for their primary data store, but as perhaps a secondary data store. Maybe they put their their relation, not their relational, but their you know their social network style data in the graph database. But maybe they have a more traditional relational database uh, management system for their primary tables. Can you give a high level decision? Of course, once you decide I need a graph DB, now you have to uh, a graph database. Uh, you may say, okay, uh, dgraph or neo4j or uh, per perhaps a proprietary option. But what about even like, do I need a graph database? versus a Postgres or a MySQL. Help people with that decision. Is there a pretty simple flow you can, you can go through in your mind to decide, is this the data store for me, especially if you're gonna pick it as a primary? That is, um, that is a tough question for a lot of people. Uh, MySQL and Postgres have been around for such a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, literally SQL is being taught in schools and colleges all over the world. Um, it's hard to, to convince somebody who is, uh, let's say, a, a Postgres fan or a SQL fan to, to switch to, to something else. So I try not to, you know, engage um, sort of directly or try to convince anybody to use graphs. Um, what happens for us is um, as the companies, so, so Postgres and MySQL are very popular with, with very young startups. But as they progress and they start to realize the limits of these systems, uh, the limitations of their join power, uh, the limitations of not being able to do recursive uh, queries across tables and stuff, um, all that code that goes into the application because database is so simple, uh, as the company size grows, they start to hit those limitations. And at some point, um, a new team, a new project would be like, hey, um, it would be great if we had a graph database for this. It would really save a lot of work. Or, um, hey, we tried this with, uh, with SQL. It's just too slow for our users. Maybe we should switch over to a graph database. Um, so that's what happens. Then they, they start looking into a graph uh, database. Obviously, they come across some of the popular choices. Um, they try them out. Uh, and then accidentally, almost, they get to... Uh, uh, hear about dgraph and uh, mm. that sticks so it's kind of one of these things where you'll know it if you need it because you'll have grown past uh, certain needs potentially in your traditional relational database and so that that makes it actually a pretty nice space for an enterprise yeah. 
offering because your 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 community is enterprise. It's it's larger. It's companies that have grown at least data wise to a size where they feel the need already, and so they're usually they're probably a certain level of successful at least hopefully. Are they even doing special things with their data more so than simply like hey we have a web app with basic crud like yeah. you know MySQL, Postgres the those databases are perfect and and great and fine for those types of apps but once you're past a certain point you want to actually make more sense or get insights or analytics that really draw relations or you know different things from a database you may want to you know experiment and, and even use an addition to versus simply replacing yeah absolutely um so we do see um some of these medium to big size companies i think they are the most uh i would say uh, active users of, of graph technologies. Uh, even even if you were to look at yesterday's uh, you know news article about Neo4j getting the $80 million, they said that, what was it, 20 out of 27 or 24 top banks in the U.S. are using uh, Neo4j. So it gives you some idea for mm. um, how popular graphs are with, uh, with enterprises. Um, but, you know, I do want to say um, one thing, though. We... I feel, and we have actually done um, some work on that as well, even for some basic stuff, which you think typically think is squarely in the SQL space, for example, building a question answering website, right? You have Quora, you have Stack Overflow, and you have like a bunch of these things, which have uh, even Facebook, right? You have a post, you have uh, comments on the post, you have likes on those comments, you have comments on comments, likes on those and so on and so forth. It's a very recursive sort of, uh, you know, if you need to show a post, it's a recursive traversal. And that's exactly what graphs are great at. Um, so what we did, uh, for example, um, I think it was last year, was we, so Stack Overflow does this data dumps uh, that you can just pick up. It's an XML file. You can pick it up and just you can do whatever with it. Um, so we picked that up and we loaded that into dgraph. Um, and we thought, hey, let's build the three most popular pages on Stack Overflow. Uh, one of them is the questions page. One of them is the home page. And uh, um, there was one more page. I forgot which one was it. Um, and we just built those three pages. The amount of backend code that we needed was not that much because the query language, uh, in this case of DGRAPH, was uh, sufficiently complex that it could just retrieve all the data for you, give it to you in a nice JSON. So all the work that needs to be done is just in the front end in rendering it as opposed to in the back end where you, you know, pick up the question from the questions table, then pick up the answer from the answers table, pick up the likes and upwards from another table, and then try mm -hmm. to join them together. You don't have to do any of that code. It just happens automatically at the database level. So I feel graphs can be used in a lot more broad way and they are a lot nicer and faster for developers. But um, that level of developer awareness, that takes some time to build. Yeah, that's a great idea for getting people to see how easy it is to build these recursive, you know, data fetches is to use something we're all very well aware of, which I don't know. Does it, you think developers know what Stack Overflow looks like? Uh, perhaps. Uh, also, you have a cool another one on your homepage is uh, play with 21 million facts from the free base film data loaded up on a demo dgraph instance so you can just hop in there and see what different uh, queries will look like and speaking a little bit to the timing of dgraph 
in terms of its competitive advantage over potential other graph databases is its query language is inspired by GraphQL, which just couldn't have been inspired by GraphQL if it was 10 years ago. Um, so this is something that's very familiar, at least to front-end web developers. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I think GraphQL was, uh, I would say, a great choice uh, for us. It was very early on, in fact. Um, I think Facebook just had released GraphQL or something, and I remember looking at it, I'm like, hey, uh, this looks like a, it's, it just fits. Um, because when you go to a graph database, you want to get a subgraph back. You don't want to mm. get a list back. Because if you get a list back, it's hard to know what was connected to what. Uh, you cannot create a subgraph from a list, but you can take a subgraph and convert it to a list. Um, and most of the other graph queries, um, Cypher and, and Gremlin, they are all uh, returning lists of things back, just like SQL does. Um, so they lose some of that uh, relationship data uh, between things. And I looked at GraphQL and I was like, hmm, this is very interesting. Uh, in fact, I, I went back and checked with the CTO at at MetaWeb who was uh, at Google and showed it to him. It's like, what do you think about this? And uh, he said that it was very close to MetaWeb's own query language called uh, MeQL, uh, which was popular at the time. Huh. And so we decided, hey, let's use this as a, as a query language. Now, the thing about GraphQL that we did not realize at the time was that it was really a replacement for REST APIs. Um, mm -hmm. And it was still designed keeping SQL in mind where we had the, the types in the GraphQL that really think of them as SQL tables and, uh, you know, the connections are similar. Um, so we started to quickly hit some of the seams of GraphQL where we felt like we could not really um, work with it if you want to build a graph database. So we had to then start to modify the spec um, outside, basically go outside of the spec and modify it. We simplified some, we added some features like shortest path, um, we, we added like filters in a, in a simple way, um, and so on and so forth. Uh, and we still don't have a good name for this language. We just call it GraphQL uh, plus minus because we <laughs> added some and we removed some. <laughs> it's first well, that's hilarious. I, I was looking at that plus minus. I thought maybe it was like a typo there because it looks like it's like accidentally in the link. But right. uh, yeah, that's that's a good name. Just uh, plus some and minus some. Is plus plus still being used often? I kind of feel like it had its heyday. You know what I mean? Like uh, it, it, I, mean, I remember like it from maybe 10 years ago, maybe even eight. I don't know. It doesn't seem like it was a couple. Is it still kind of a current no naming pattern is like a, a hacker thing, something plus plus. I think so. Yeah. I think it's still out there. Okay. I mean, people still, I think hackers like, are well. still typing it on the daily. Yeah, sure. Okay. But we, we, we still plus use, minus uh, is brand new. We still use C plus plus and we were like, hey, is it GraphQL sure. plus plus? Right. But then I was like, well, it doesn't do everything that GraphQL does. Um, so it would be wrong to call it plus plus. Um, it has to be plus minus. I dig it. So is that something that potentially those pluses or maybe the minuses could work their way back into GraphQL? Or is it just because working with graph databases, there are things that just don't make sense for the broader uh, web API GraphQL? Honestly, that's a question on my mind uh, almost every other day. Um, we, 
we do see how popular GraphQL has become. In fact, this has become way more popular than I anticipated. Um, and uh, there is an open ticket on Dcraft to support the official GraphQL spec. So it will play well with all the tooling out there. Like Apollo raised a bunch of money and Apollo is being used quite a lot in the GraphQL community. Um, and we would like GraphQL to play well with, play well with all of those, those tools. Um, so I think there's definitely something that we want to do is to support the official one. Um, it probably takes a deeper discussion with the, with the authors of GraphQL to see if they would like to integrate some of the uh, modifications that we have done uh, back into the spec. Um, that's uh, probably a harder discussion though. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is a cloud computing platform built with simplicity at the forefront. So managing infrastructure is easy. Whether you're a business running one single virtual machine or 10,000, DigitalOcean gets out of your way so teams can build, deploy, and scale cloud apps faster and more efficiently. Join the ranks of Docker, GitLab, Slack, HashiCorp, WeWork, Fastly, and more. Enjoy simple, predictable pricing. Sign up, deploy your app in seconds. Head to do.co slash changelog, and our listeners get a free $100 credit to spend in your first 60 days. Try it free. Once again, head to do.co slash changelog. help us understand some of the killer use cases, the sweet spot for graph databases. Similar to the idea of, you know, uh, I think Mongo uh, came out really talking about document-based data stores and saying, if you're running an e-commerce site, such as Magento, look at all these crazy joins on these different tables just to pull together a shopping cart. Really, that's a document, so let's have a document database. And that was, a, I think, a compelling use case or at least selling point for that style data store. When I think of graph databases, I think of social networks, but that's just me. Uh, from your perspective, what's the sweet spot for these types of data stores? Yeah, so there are certain use cases where people immediately think about using a graph database and where, where I think there's a sweet spot there. Um, the, the, the top one which comes to my mind is uh, real-time recommendations. Uh, these days, companies have a lot of data uh, around their users. For example, you know you have uh, um, credit cards or you have rewards cards from from even big airlines or or hotels uh, or e-commerce companies around what users have purchased in the past and what other people have purchased. Uh, Amazon comes to mind, right? Amazon is an amazing uh, runs an amazing recommendation system. Uh, so that's that's. Um, one of probably the most demanded features or the most demanded use cases uh, from a graph database. Um, then we have seen uh, particularly medium to big companies go really hard after real-time fraud detection. It's, it's very easy in a graph to find circ circles um, where they can identify if it's the same person or entity 
trying to create you know multiple cards or multiple money sources um, and uh, figure out if it's a ring um, and sort of cash that we have also seen uh, identity reconciliation uh, you know people trying to figure out if you're the same person in in let's say instagram in facebook in twitter um, so and so forth so mm. those kind of reconciliations um, now you can apply them to you know other data sources uh, that's actually a good usage for graphs and this is and the last one this is actually the most relevant to particularly big companies they have a lot of data silos they have uh, a lot of different databases uh, or even just different database instances um, where they actually grab data um, and just it one silo never talks to the other one um, and what they then do is they unify all of the data from these different silos into a graph database because remember graph database do not have uh, graph databases do not have any boundaries the idea of graphs is that you just put all the data into one place and you can traverse from any node in the graph to any other node however far away it might be there is no tables uh, there is no different databases it's just one graph and so that actually that concept really helps when you want to query across multiple data sources hmm. um, and the fifth one which uh, which is really jumping up these days is around artificial intelligence um, there was just a paper i think uh, by google i think i was reading like uh, last week around how they realized that they have reached the limits um, and they need to use a graph uh, database to be able to to do better ai um, and they even like kind of launched a small graph library that you can use to integrate with tensorflow um, and in fact just reading it from yesterday's uh, post around neo4j funding ai was the top thing that they're going to go after with the new money that they're getting so hmm. you know i think for ai graphs are a no-brainer if you had to give somebody a graph database 101 would you just say it's like a string that threads different data points and that strings as you kind of said there can infinitely scale what would be if you had to give a you know a 101 of what a graph database is how long might that be and, and could you do it here absolutely i think it's i think graphs are probably the simplest things to think about really uh you know uh, people think about sql tables you have a row and you have some columns uh, think of graph as as uh, uh, three columns where you have subject uh, a predicate and an object and if you put together a whole bunch of these things you get a, a graph um, so a subject is essentially think of it as an entity uh, a predicate is the relationship and the object is either another entity or a value so subject could be let's say me uh, and my uh, relationship might be lives in and the object might be san francisco right right uh, or it could be me uh, name is Manish and that's uh, sort of like a property right so you just put together a whole bunch of these what we call facts or triples um, and you get a graph right um, and then you know other people who live in San Francisco would have similar facts and then you could run a graph query around hey tell me all the people who live in San Francisco and who eat sushi right so you do like a bit of uh, you pick up all the people who live in San Francisco you intersect with people in the world who eat sushi which are completely different facts uh, you didn't you didn't store you didn't uh, create them 
as this person, you know, lives in San Francisco and eats sushi. This is something that we're doing on the fly. So you pick up all the people in San Francisco, pick up all the people in the world who eat sushi. You intersect the two lists. Now you get people in San Francisco who eat sushi. Now you can take that result and say, give me all the people, uh, intersect with all the people who have been to Japan, right? Uh, you pick up another list of people who have been to Japan, intersected with this. Now you, now you get people who live in San Francisco who eat sushi and you have been to Japan, right? So the power of graphs is, is really in these joins that you can do based upon coming from just very simple facts. It makes sense too why in part one you mentioned not having to rewrite a bunch of code. You know, when you when you explain it in the 101 that that uh, these things naturally appear based on the way you query the data versus traditional ways you might have done it with MySQL or Postgres or relational databases. In this case, that the graph of these points become more and more clear as you intersect or cross over the data because it's just naturally how it works. And you're saving one time, but also insights that were just so much harder to get to in traditional ways or other database ways. That's that's absolutely true. And, uh, uh, you know, I was playing with the movie database, uh, the, the FreeBS movie set that we have also on our website. And uh, one of the interesting things that you can look at the data all you want and you never really find these, these tidbits. But I put it into DGraph and run some queries and turns out uh, that uh, uh, the directors of, of Indiana Jones movies were also in the movie, right? I mean, Steven Spielberg was in one of the Indiana Jones movies as one of the characters in the movie. Yeah. Uh, there are some of these interesting things, they just become really obvious uh, when you put them in a graph. That's interesting. So you add that, the built-in acid transactions, which gives you a lot of uh, safety. And what are you missing then? So... Uh, is everything better in, in GraphDB land or are the things that relational databases still do better today? Like, what are the drawbacks? Um, I used to say that drawback was that uh, Graph database, DGraph, uh, was not great for financial transactions. But then we added transactions. And so now it's great <laughs> for financial transactions. Um, the other drawback that we, that we still have uh, is that it's not really great for flat data and by flat data, I mean like time series data, right? You just have uh, tons of things which are not really connections, but just more and more record points for the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of flat data is really it just you know not done very well with graph databases. You could use a graph for that, um, but it's better if you aggregate it somewhere else and bring in the results into a graph database than to try to do the aggregation uh, uh, or storage in the graph database. So basically in a world full of subjects that have many verbs with many like-minded objects, graph databases apply. Uh, absolutely, I think. Um, any, any SQL table, which is essentially row and column and the data, can be easily converted into, into graphs. Um, and, uh, and I think every time we have tried to, do, tried to switch from a SQL use case to a graph use case, just the amount of backend code that was there in play before reduces by at least half because the query language it's, is, is so much more powerful. So to go further into Jared's question of like where you reach for a graph database over say Postgres or MySQL or relational, you said you used to not recommend it for transactional, but then you built it. Is there a checklist of things that is like you'd reach for 
Postgres over GraphDB uh, or, or DGraph or other graph databases that is like consistently being chiseled away where graph databases just went out? Um, sorry, could you repeat that question? Basically meaning is, is there a list of things where you recommend, well, okay, if you're in these scenarios, don't use a graph database that you, you know, like you, you said before, you don't recommend it for transactional database uh, and then you built transactions. So now you, you take that back. You Maybe that was the mind. list. That was, that was the list. Okay. Was there sure one thing it was in the list or not? Well, uh, flat data. Right. So if you don't have a lot of relationships, then it's, I mean, you can, I'm according to what you just said, Manish, you can use them, but they're not necessarily optimized for that. Right. You're not going to get so any advantages the, necessarily. Right. So I think the time series data is the, is the one which time I mentioned. Series. Yeah. It, it's just not great for graphs. What about management and maintenance? Because that's when, when I, so I am a Postgres user and have been for, for years. And so I always look at these shiny different data stores and I think this sounds great when I'm in development. And then I have to actually put the thing into the world and run it and like back it up and uh, make sure it's always up and so on and so forth. And then it's like, now I have to relearn or learn a brand new set of maintenance or management skills that I already own on the Postgres side. So I think that's probably a barrier for a lot of people. Um, what's the story with deploying this thing? I know it's built in distributed, so it's going to shard horizontally for you, which sounds amazing, but also uh, potentially scary. I don't know. Tell us about deployment. Um, so deployment is, uh, is where where you lose customers. I think not for DGraph in general, but I'm just talking about in general, this is where you can easily lose customers because DevOps guys are always hard to impress. And uh, we have spent <laughs> a lot of time making sure that DevOps guys are happy with DGraph. So we already built in, uh, as I said, uh, you know, it's distributed, uh, so it can shop the data for you, but it is also uh, replicated. And all of that is part of the open core. Um, so a uh, bunch of deployments that we're doing right now, um, they use uh, what we call a six north cluster, where we have uh, three replicas for uh, DGraph zero and three replicas for DGraph alpha. Don't worry about the terminology here, but just understand that it's, it's three replicas each. Um, and DGraph uses a uh, consensus algorithm called Raft uh, to make sure that every data that you put into DGraph, it gets, um, it reaches a quorum and gets replicated across majority of these replicas before it, the acknowledgement is sent back to the user. Um, so in case one of the servers crash, nothing happens. Your, your queries would keep on running, your uh, data will keep on mutating, everything would just be fine. The DevOps guy would get a notification. They can either swap the machine or the machine just, if you're using Kubernetes, the machine just comes back up automatically and your users don't even see it. So it becomes really easy uh, as a DevOps person to just run DGraph and, uh, and keep everything uh, uh, happy. And one more thing that, that happens at the developer level is that, as I said um, before, that sometimes with, with Postgres, for example, or, or any, any database which has a eventual consistency in the replication system, uh, they will write, they will, let's say, create a new account uh, into the master. And then, then they want to read uh, this new user's account and they end up going to a replica. And the replica still doesn't have that new record um, so it will show, hey, account not found. 
mm-hmm. which is just bad experience for for a user so there's a lot of systems built um on top or you have to build it yourself to make sure that if you're doing a read after write then the read goes back to the master which basically means your replicas are not used as well um or you have to do a bunch of uh, application level uh, uh t- tweaks and techniques to make it work now dgraph doesn't in dgraph you don't have to worry about any of that because it's all consistent so even if a even if a node crashes and is down for a long time comes back up and you run a immediately run a query the query would block until the node has caught up to the rest of the cluster and only once the data is up to date would it reply back and obviously there is also uh, ways by which you can time out and query another server so all of these things are built in to make sure that you always get uh, the freshest data uh, what we call linearizable reads mm. so it it tackles some of the common issues uh, that from the both the devops side and also from the developer side so does it give up availability then in that case when the query blocks until it's consistent so you're losing availability uh yeah so in the cap theorem it goes for consistency in partitioning um instead okay. of uh, availability but note that uh, a lot of people uh, mistake this cap theorem is not the same as high availability uh dgraph is highly available but it still goes for cp instead of ca sorry ap So I have some pretty awesome news to share. We are now partnered with Algolia. If you've ever searched Hacker News, Teespring, Medium, Twitch, or even Product Hunt, then you've experienced the results of Algolia's search API. And as we expand our content, we knew that one day we'd have to either roll our own search solution on top of Postgres, or we could partner up with Algolia. And I'm happy to report that phase one of our search is now powered by Algolia. We're able to fine tune our indexing, gain insights from search patterns and analytics. We can create custom query rules to influence ranking behavior. as well as improve our search experience by adding synonyms and alternative correction to queries. Sure, we could build search ourselves, but that would mean we would be busy doing that instead of shipping shows like you're listening to right now. Huge thanks to our friends at Algolia for working with us. Check the show notes for a link to get started for free or learn more by heading to algolia.com. And by GoCD. GoCD is an open source continuous delivery server built by ThoughtWorks. Check them out at gocd.org or on GitHub at github.com/gocd. GoCD provides continuous delivery out of the box with its built-in pipelines, advanced traceability, and value stream visualization. With GoCD, you can easily model, orchestrate, and visualize complex workflows from end to end with no problem. They support Kubernetes and modern infrastructure with elastic on-demand agents and cloud deployments. To learn more about GoCD, visit gocd.org/changelog. It's free to use, and they have professional support and enterprise add-ons available from ThoughtWorks. Once again, gocd.org/changelog. based on what you've shared with us so far it sounds like the initial start for dgraph as a company was 2013 is that right 2015 2015, 2015. 
2015, you you did a round. You raised three point three point one million dollars, if I remember correctly. Is that right? Uh, so we did a round in early 2016, and then another round in uh, sort of late 2017. Okay. Um, just a total of I think 2.9 ish uh, million. So that means somebody trusts you with millions of dollars, basically. So I'm trying to get at like you're establishing a company, you build a technology that's obviously proven itself. And somebody said, yeah, here's a, here's money. I trust you. I trust what you're trying to build. And I think it makes sense to do so. And sometimes that means that you've licensed things appropriately. Uh, the project has been open core, open source. You can tell us more about the, the inner details of that and what that means. But somehow, some way, at some point you chose the right license that allowed you to take on funding and build a company around it. Can you kind of walk us through what that is? Cause I'm imagining there's just so many developers out there you know, going to choosalicense.com or is it .org and they're, they're getting enough information, but still yet the wisdom is not there. Maybe so much the, the definitions and details are, but I feel like you can bring some, some uh, bloody knuckles and some wisdom here. So, so, so preach. Oh, absolutely. So I think um, when I was starting DGraph and this is towards the end of 2015, um, you know, I naturally went for open source and it was not clear to me at that time uh, how the business model would work. I think, in fact, a lot of people I talked to around this idea of, hey, let's build a, I'm going to build a graph database and make it open source. And they were like, but you're putting all the IP out there, then what's left for you to make money off? Uh, and I think, so the business models around open source only became sort of clear to me slightly later you know, and I think I think a lot of people who uh, who are in the valley probably are more aware of them, but definitely people in Australia uh, were not. Um, you know, you get open core and so on and so forth. Now, the 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 choice of licensing was kind of important to me. Uh, you know, uh, the 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 behemoth in the graph space, uh, Neo4j, was licensed as uh, AGPL. Um, and uh, which is considered to be a, a copyleft license. Um, now, what AGPL does is that if you were to uh, touch any code um, and use this AGPL code as, let's say, a library, um, then you must open source your code also as AGPL. It's sort of like a viral license. If you touch it, uh, you, you, it, it affects you as well. Um, and we decided um, to go with the with the with the more permissive sort of Apache license. Um, now, uh, the, a lot of people think um, the reason to open source something is around getting contributions from uh, from from you know just developers all over the world. And uh, I would I would say that is true, but it is not the main uh, benefit of open sourcing something. The biggest benefit of open sourcing software uh, in my mind is around adoption. Uh, it's basically free marketing. You, uh, you put your code as open source, anybody can see it. They feel more comfortable using it. They don't have to pay you a dime to use it, uh, particularly in permissive licenses like Apache and BSD and MIT, et cetera. Um, and these days, if you want to build an infrastructure company, I've, I've noticed um, most startups and more, most like sort of um, uh, tech-based companies 
they really want the underlying technology to be open source. Uh, and they have multiple benefits of doing so. When they have the code available to them, they, can, they already have the engineering talent. That talent can potentially go and modify the, the code base to, uh, to improve it or modify it to their liking, etc. Um, so the biggest thing I've seen around uh, permissive licenses is uh, adoption. And also you get contributions, but more importantly, I think over the journey of both DGRAF and Badger that I've noticed is, is just the fact that people tell you, give, people give you feedback around issues that they run into. And that feedback I feel is more important sometimes than the actual code contributions that you get. So if you look at any open source uh, repository, you'll see, you know, 90% of the contributions are being done by the core team of three or four people. And then there's a whole long tail of small contributions done by the bigger open source community. Um, that's sort of like the, the uh, ugly truth or unknown truth about uh, open source projects. So really, I think it's the feedback that, that really makes, uh, that, that improves the robustness of code. That's definitely an interesting take. Uh, I think most people would say that the contributions are the the main reason, but I think I think that's a compelling statement that you have there with regard to the feedback versus actual code contributions. So you mentioned picking Apache versus AGPL. Tell us about AGPL. Maybe even contrast it with GPL, which is a modification of to a certain degree, and then why uh, it was unattractive to you as a license. So I think let me just start with explaining a bit about AGPL itself. And uh, again, this is best to my understanding. Uh, with GPL, the idea is that, you know, it's the code is on the same place and the users are, are sort of linking to it as a library. Um, and again, the, the virality of this whole GPL series uh, comes into play. So if you link your code to GPL code, your code becomes, it's supposed to become GPL as well. Right. And you must make it open source under GPL terms. Now, AGPL was then devised as a way by which um, it can tackle GPL running as a server and you interfacing with it over the network. Um, so I think the idea was that... Uh, um, uh, is to try to make the same virality affect you if you are running a GPL code in the server and interfacing with it over a client. That's my understanding as well. The, the GPL had a quote-unquote loophole because it was designed before this, the proliferation of services, right? Websites, web servers, web services where you're not delivering the end code, you're delivering a byproduct of the code. And so the AGPL was basically a fix for that loophole to also make the server side, even if you don't deliver the code to the end user, still covered under the, what well, you said, the virality portion of the GPL. So I think we're in agreement with that's, that being the primary means and then for the aim. And then also I think it was effective in that regard. Absolutely. And a lot of um, companies who, who still want to like um, hold on tightly to their code base tend to use uh, AGPL as a, as a sort of like a stopgap between going fully permissive open source and um, uh, while still trying to make sure that they, they have uh, a more solid sort of um, business model around this. Um, now, 
we actually like dcraft initially we did also try to uh, convert from apache to agpl now when you do such a conversion the first thing that you have to make sure of is that even before the project started you have a good um icla in place now what's an icla it's an individual contributor license agreement which means that any contribution that you that you take in uh into your open source project um the the rights to that contribution are given back to the uh to the company running the open source and we put that in place into dgraph very early on even when we were under apache so that means that um in a way the the authors of that contribution uh, they they hand the rights back to the company which means the company can now change the licensing if need be we do not accept any um uh, contributions without the author signing icla and it's just a standard practice i've noticed uh, across not just digra but other uh, open source companies as well so that meant that we could change the licensing terms and we did change it to to agpl um falling this was i think after mongodb went ipo and mongodb uh, was using agpl and we felt maybe that's a better way for us to make sure that we have a good business model um and once we had switched over to agpl we started hitting um some of these these things that we did not really uh, understand before now to give you a bit of a history google explicitly bans agpl code uh, google's open source guy chris debona uh, in fact uh, sort of famously said that uh, no agpl code is uh, is useful or good um uh, and we don't need to use it they banned it now when google goes and bans a license other companies follow right so facebook uh, now facebook doesn't publish it openly and i don't really know but i know that much that in facebook and in apple and some of these big companies it is very hard or almost impossible to bring in any agpl code which means uh and we actually had some of these things so somebody wants to play with dgraph uh at one of these big companies they are unable to because they can't even bring the code into the company uh, uh at all so we started realizing that because of this people were having hard time adopting dgraph and again this going back to my point about why would you choose open source over proprietary license it's largely for adoption so we started seeing some of those um issues and we switched over from apache to agpl in march 2017 if i'm not wrong and then towards the uh end of 2017 we decided hey we we need a better solution here agpl seems too toxic uh to be used uh for you know for dgraph um and around that time we started the discussion um probably right, some somewhat after that started discussion with the redis labs folks and uh, you know together we came up with this thing called uh, the commons clause now the idea behind commons clause is that you use a permissive license you know, like apache or in this case of redis they use bsd um and you add a clause which basically says that it basically prohibits um some company or some person to sell the software as it is um and and why would we why would we go to agpl or why would we go to commons clause the reason is that um what's been happening uh, lately and what 
none of the open source licenses have thought about is that big companies um, and these uh, platform as a service or infrastructure as a service, etc. companies, most notably Amazon uh, and the Chinese counterparts, they would pick up an open source project and they would run it as a service at a you know much cheaper price, uh, and you know uh, they, they because they have the they have the bandwidth and the engineering talent and the money for it, they would they would run it as a service without contributing back to the open source project. Um, and the main thing that that uh, we were going for is to avoid that, right? If you want to like sell this thing to to uh, to developers, you should at least contribute back. Or you should you should help the company uh, financially, uh, who is actually doing most of the contributions. So all of these licenses, uh, AGPL or or Commons Close, and now Mongo's uh, SSPL, they are really around trying to to dissuade uh, big providers, service providers, from just ripping off an open source uh, project. It seems like this stems based on your earlier points is like your motivations, right? Your lens for which you're navigating this. And in, in your case, in particular with DGraph, um, you know, you are optimizing as open source for adoption, not so much contributions, right? So you still want contributions. That's still important. It's part of the world. It's how open source works, but you're doing it based on adoption. So you've had to go through different licenses and you want to be, you want to have a liberal license with a clause that protects you so you can be a company and actually be viable and sustainable. And there's some that say that that added clause basically makes you not open source. What do you say to that? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a, it's a very um, delicate trade-off between trying to choose a permissive license which allows most users to just use the software while also dissuading uh, a big company from coming in and, and stealing your, you know, your financial sort of longev longevity in some sense, right? Um, and if you put commons clause in place, it is true the the project is no longer open source because it is not, the commons clause is not OSDI approved. Now, Redis did a smart thing where they, they uh, kept most of their code base under the BSD license, which is it is still open source but chose some of the modules that they had built uh, and put them under commons clause, right? So you can think of again as this open core model in some sense where most of your code is, is open source, but then some of your code is not. Um, and uh, when we applied uh, commons clause to DGraph, we applied it fully, uh, which means all of the code base was under commons clause. Um, and we just... Uh, we were just not convinced that that was the right move. Uh, and uh, this became very apparent when, again, Google went in and banned Commons Close as well. Now, I don't agree with the reasoning for, for Google to ban Commons Close, which was that they feel that Commons Close prohibits all commercial usages, which is completely wrong, uh, really. Commons Close uh, has this term called uh, if the code is substantially the same as the original code, then you can't sell it. Substantially is a term used very commonly in legal documents to basically indicate that if you tweak things a bit, it doesn't make it different. Um, and that is just a way of saying that if largely the, the, if largely you're selling the same thing, which is selling, let's say, 
Redis modules in this case or selling dgraph, um, then you would not be allowed to do that. But you can build something on top of it. Uh, for example, you could build a question answering website. You could build uh, um, some other proprietary service on top of dgraph. Um, and you can sell that. Nobody stops you from doing that because uh, it is not substantially the same thing. So that was the idea behind Commons Clause. I feel that it was the intentions were correct, but uh, it was very hard to convey to to people in the community and even even in Google in this case uh, what substantially meant. And I think we went through many many debates around explaining to people. Substantially does not mean this, substantially doesn't mean that. Uh, but I don't think it was, it's a fight that is uh, easy to win. Mm. Um, and, and then I think uh, most, and, and we, so we in the end, after we realized that Commerce Clause was banned by Google, brings us back to the same place where AGPL is banned by Google. And again, it affects adoption. Um, and so we decided that we will switch back to uh, Apache license. Now, uh, there's an interesting sort of backdrop here. Um, this is back in uh, 2017, I think. CockroachDB, a database company in New York, they had come up with a license which was essentially Apache plus enterprise license, what they call the Cockroach license. Um, and what they did was, instead of like trying to uh, close source their enterprise uh, modules, they open, they made it source visible and they co-located it right next to their open source code base. So now what they have is they have the, the main source tree, which is uh, Apache licensed, and then certain modules, which are under the enterprise license, uh, still uh, with the code visible. And that was a very attractive uh, sort, of, uh, um, sort of system. Um, and it was very well received by their community. And um, um, it's something that, that I had in the back of my mind for a while. Uh, and I felt that uh, Degra was still sort of young enough and we have not yet, we, we have started to build our enterprise features, but I felt that we can easily switch over to that license um, and uh, make it work. So what we have done now is that we have brought Degra back to Apache without any clause um, and we're going to build uh, enterprise uh, modules which would be source visible. Um, this system is also adopted, uh, if I'm not wrong, by Elasticsearch. Um, and it's just in general, a very big win for open, for liberal open source licenses in some sense. One more thing on top of this is that, you know, so this is our journey, that's where our journey sort of like kind of concludes. Uh, but after we switched over to Apache license and enterprise license, uh, MongoDB, which was uh, previously AGPL, has gone even stricter and created a license called uh, SSPL, which is server-side public license. Now, you know, as, GP, as AGPL was uh, sort of um, stricter than GPL, uh, SSPL is even stricter than AGPL. And what it says is that it tries to do the same thing as Commons Close in some sense, uh, but does it a bit differently. So what they say is that if you run MongoDB as a service, then you must open source the code base, which helps you run MongoDB as a service. Again, it's a, it's a jab at the big uh, service providers like Amazon. Um, but it's just done in a different way where they probably have a, a better chance of getting it approved by OSI. Um, 
but in my mind it's trying to achieve the same thing as what redis was doing with commons clause so there are plenty of people out there that are vehemently opposed to commons clause with regards to open source software because as you said the osi has not approved it and potentially will not approve it and so there's uh there's commons clause licensed projects that you know claim to be open source and and even on the commonsclause.com it says is is this open source and it says no because of that specific thing that being said do you believe the commons clause is in the spirit of open source because i'm on the fence there it seems like you know freedom to modify freedom to read dispute it it seems like a, a bit anti-freedom but only for a small subset right it's like large corporation slash service providers you can't like we'll take your freedom away but everybody else is still free i don't know what's this was something you've you've gone down the path you've you implemented it's kind of there and back again apache 2 maybe hgpl maybe commons clause you've had some pushback from your community you mentioned google banning it was the showstopper makes a lot of sense for adoption but all along the way manish it seems like your intentions are are good uh from what i can tell from this conversation so what do you think about the commons clause with regards to maybe it's not open source approved but do you do you believe it's in the heart of uh, in the spirit of open source or or not um i absolutely believe uh it is i feel it is more in the spirit of open source than agpl is why is that the problem with agpl uh will with being used at any medium to big company is that um the moment you bring in AGPL, you have to be afraid about, hey, do I need to open source my own code base? And the problem with big companies is that they have this spaghetti code, which is, you know, part proprietary, part mm -hmm. like ancient. Um, it's very hard to say, okay, this piece I can break off and maybe open source this, but this piece I can keep proprietary. It's, it's very hard to say that. Um, and therefore, if you look at, you know, Google, for example, when they built Kubernetes or when they built gRPC, they didn't just open source their existing systems, Borg and Stubby. They had to rewrite them from scratch to make mm -hmm. it open source. Um, and so AGPL puts this restriction upon these companies that if they use any AGPL code, uh, they must open source uh, because of virality. It's, it's, it's very prohibitive. Now, you bring in Commons Clause plus Apache. Apache gives you anything. Uh, basically, you can do anything with the code base. You don't have to open source. It's not viral. Um, and Commerce Clause stops you from selling the, the database in this case or, or whatever it's, uh, the code base is from selling that particular code. It works for big companies. Mm -hmm. um, Very cut and dry. It, it, it should work for, you know, let's say Google. It should work for, for Facebook because they're not trying to sell the, they're not trying to sell Redis. Uh, they're not trying to sell Dcraft. They're just trying to use it. Um, so I feel it, it is more permissive than uh, AGPL. The only companies it should really affect is if you are Amazon and trying to sell Redis and all the particular modules that they, that they put in the commons clause, then you're not able to sell that, um, which is, I, I feel it's fine because uh, if they did not contribute, um, then uh, maybe they shouldn't sell it and maybe they should let the contributors sell that. So, so that's my take on it. For AGPL, I might have a, a somewhat um, analogous uh, you know, take on this, so to speak. It reminds me of CSS in a way. 
right? There's a cascade, an unwanted effect of using it, which is not always clear when you make changes or use a class or something like that, right? There's hidden things. So if I use HGPL, it may affect licenses or other future software I ever use in unwanted ways. And those unwanted ways provides ambiguity and it's not clear. So the, in those reasons, I can see why it's not, you know, that's accurate. Then I can see why it's less likely. Whereas commas clause is more like, a razor blade, like it's a clear cut, you know, it's like I, I can license my code permissively, you know, at one level and then clause in or add an addendum, which is the point of it is here's one clause and it's only for this project and it doesn't affect any other things it touches. It's just like if you're trying to resell my thing here, then that's just not possible. So I'm with you too, Jared, like, um, on Manisha's take, like, seems like a great guy. I like him. Um, you know, he's, he's still here. here. <laughs> yeah, he's still here. We haven't hung up on him yet. I can hear you. <laughs> right. You know, it's it, this is where I think it, this needs to be a dialogue. And blog posts are great for getting points across. Uh, I really feel like this needs some sort of, like, at-large literal discussion. Because behind all software is human beings with often great intentions. Right. Manish isn't trying to hurt people. He just wants to be able to create awesome tech and have people use it. He said that here and he's trying to look for, and he and his team, and I'm sure his investors too, are trying to make sure that remains possible. And so I'm, I'm but for couldn't that. He just do that now that we're talking about him and he's not here anymore. Couldn't he just <laughs> do that by having closed source software? Like, isn't that just a way of going? I mean, if you want to do that, I'm just playing devil's advocate. Right. If you want to do that, and obviously, Manish, please feel free to respond. We're not actually talking about you like you're not here. Um, couldn't you just close source? I mean, keep it proprietary, and then you get to say hands off. You don't have these problems. So um, the thing about, uh, about closed source is, again, it goes back to the reason about why do you want to open source in the first place? Mm -hmm. I think it's not about the contributions. I mean, obviously, if you get contributions, I always thank people for contributions, uh, thank them for the feedback. but the reason you make anything open source is adoption. Um, you want to build something which a lot of companies, a lot of people are going to base uh, their entire tech stack upon, in this case, a database. They're going to, um, they're going to uh, trust you with their data. They want to be able to look at the code and make sure that uh, the code base is good quality. Uh, it doesn't have any weird bugs, that they are able to modify the code. And what if the company dies tomorrow? they should still be able to uh, adopt that code base and then maybe run with it. Um, so I feel open source You can source do that is, with a proprietary license as well. I mean, you could ship them binaries plus source code as part of their license. This isn't something they wouldn't be able to do. That's the thing about proprietary is you can do whatever you want with it. True. The, the other part of this uh, equation is that when you make something proprietary, the selling becomes a lot more work. You need to have an entire sales team to uh, to be able to go to individual companies and be like, hey, uh, have you heard about this thing called, you know, Dgraph? And it's a proprietary thing. You can't see it online, but uh, we can sell it to you for use. Um, mm -hmm. It is a lot harder pitch than, hey, developers, it's just free. It's out there. You can try it. And if you don't like it, it's fine. If you like it, it's fine. You don't have to talk to us. Um, and I think that's the beauty of open source is that it avoids having to have salespeople running around. Um, and uh, you just mm -hmm. become part of a developer conversation 
um, anywhere in the world. Um, nobody has to pay you to try it. Okay. I think the problem though is is uh, is being seen as masquerading as open source, but not really being exactly. open source. The it goes back to like original things. It's been said like the anti commons clause or whatever. Right. Um, just just in terms of the spirit of open source, and sure, it is open. You can see it. I can contribute back if I want to, but it. I think what the community is really pushing back on is less like, hey, that's a bad thing, and more like, hey, this really isn't open source, so just don't call it open source, and we'll be okay. Yeah, it's it's potentially a namespace conflict, right, as, as all things right. are, because, um, you know, the, the benefits of open source are immense, as you've said, Manesh, and in, in many cases, especially in infrastructure style, like missions critical, enterprise software in 2018, it's almost table stakes for a success because people expect it. Like you said, your sales processes are easier. People can like the trust is immediately there. And yet when you add commons clause to it, it's, it's restricting in that regards. And so now it's like, well, right there on commonsclause.com, this is not open source. It's something else. But then there's also like you want, it's almost like and I'm not saying this personally against you or against DGAF, but it's it's as if you want the benefits of open source without actually being open source. And so maybe it needs to be like available source or readable <laughs> source. Or, you know, it's almost like we just got to come up with some more nomenclature similar to how we have copy left, copy right, or free, you know, free and libre versus open source. We have all these different terms. Maybe there's a need for another term for this style. I don't know. What do you think about that, Manesh? We were we were very careful when we switched to uh, to Commons Clause and Apache that we removed all the references to open source and okay. we swapped them with a liberal license okay. uh, because I think it goes back into my uh, my take on this is that it's more liberal than AGPL and some of the yeah. other open source licenses uh, so we had to switch it over to liberal license. It was a bit of a heartache for me because I've been an open source guy for a long time. Mm-hmm. Back in 2005, I wrote this thing called Flickr FS to build a file system on top of Flickr, which was the most popular image sharing site at the time. Um, so I've been through and through open source guy and it was a bit of a hard decision. But I think something, um, and, and just to be clarified, right? So we have moved away from Thomas Lowe's, but yeah. Still, I, I would sort of defend the, the thought at the time was that it it is probably not approved by the folks who are at mm-hmm. OSI, but in terms of the spirit of open source, I feel it was there. Um, I think open source has to evolve uh, to a point where people who are building open source can sustain themselves from what they are building, as opposed to having to ask for donations or having to work for another company or having to be acquired by another company who is writing proprietary code. Um, Every time I see some open source author having to go join a company and abandon their open source project, which is very popular, it it hurts me in some sense. It just feels bad. Why shouldn't a person who is writing an amazing code uh, not able to sustain themselves with the right intentions in their mind? which is that, hey, open source obviously makes sense. Now we should, we should, uh, there should be a deeper conversation about, hey, open source makes sense. We all agree. Let's figure out how do we make money? How do we make sure that people who are in open source continue to make money and not just, not just by working, making open source their secondary project, 
but having open source as their primary project and the source of income. It definitely, I mean, hearing it from that perspective and then also knowing, you know, what a history you have in open source back to Flickr FS, you know, it, it makes you really consider this, what you say is a necessary evolution of open source, because based on what you just said there and how you said it was that the restriction, the free and libre of open source is there, but it at some point it does restrict potentially the sustainability by restricting its original creators and maintainers and community from being able to profit in certain ways from it because of just sheer competition. Like you just, you can't compete with Amazon. Maybe you can, maybe you really can, but I mean, you'll like most, if Amazon launches a, a furniture line, well, Wayfair's stock goes down 6% in a day. I mean, that happens, right? So, you know, how can we expect little all you guys in your team to compete? And the restriction is that the, the restriction comes back to the original core team and how you can sustain it financially without having to, as you said, the examples were either ask for donations, work for a company. You're, you're, you're not liberated to operate a company around this source code in a way that is financially feasible if you have to face sheer weight of competition that is just so massive. Does that summarize somewhat of what you're trying to say there? Um, yeah, I think I think uh, one thing I, we failed to mention is uh, the three models of open source uh, money making, right? I think Richard quickly mentioned that. So, so it all ties together. Uh, you know, the first one is that you have this open core, which is under uh, uh, open source license and you build proprietary features on top of it and which you sell. Um, that's the first one. And in Redis Labs case, they they basically try to make those modules uh, sort of under a commons clause so that they can, they can sell those. The second is that um, you uh, obviously support and training comes in, right? Red Hat pioneered this a uh, long time ago and every open source company does open support and training and that's how they make money. The third one is that you run that, that software as a service. And I think this is where Amazon, Amazon story comes from the picture is for example, with Redis Labs, they, Amazon is, is probably running Redis uh, behind their scenes for, is that Elastic uh, Cash or I forget where it is. Um, and they're literally just running that without paying anything back to, to Redis Labs. And Redis Labs in this case also has a competing uh, Redis as a service uh, availability. Right. And so both MongoDB and Redis and whoever is trying to use Commons Close is trying to avoid a big company like Amazon. And also, and now these days, uh, their Chinese counterparts, I think, um, I forget the name of that, but they also are running uh, Redis and Mongo behind their uh, service providers and charging uh, customers for it. So these companies are like, hey, um, we build this thing. We should be, uh, you shouldn't be competing with us on this and uh, we should be getting that money. Just trying to stop the leeches, you know, stop leeching off people, mm-hmm. you know, contribute back. It makes you kind of mad, <laughs> even though you told, I totally get it, right? I can see it from Amazon's side, right? But uh, yeah, it's like the leech clause. Call it. There you go, the leech clause. <laughs> well, a in a problem. free world, uh, people are free to do literally whatever they want. And okay. so I think in the spirit of open source, they, the idea has been for it to be a free world. And 
in most or all senses of the word. And I think when you restrict that freedom, it does begin to munge the original intentions. But I think we do need to recognize, you know, this leech scenario and the viability of it. If we continue to allow that to happen and not have conversations that hear all sides, then we essentially allow the freedom of the software as good as it may be to stagnate and potentially, like you said, Jerry, why not go into proprietary? And then we, we wouldn't even be talking to Manish, you know, cause <laughs> you know I mean, like what would be the point, right? The open source is one that's in quotes. It's been said not just by us, but others, you know, so that's in quotes. <laughs> well, I mean, it's uh, Nadia Ekbal said it on request for commits many times and others agreed. So that's why I see it's in quotes. Cause it's been said. Not just here by us, but others. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it just needs more attention. I'm not saying I agree or it's wrong or it's right. I definitely see the pain points and we need some sort of evolution. I would like to add one thing. I think this is, uh, it seems like a fresh thing. It seems like a new thing that uh, there's this attack on open source in some sense by this commons close, etc. But this was uh, done before. I mean, if you look at uh, GPL, um, the idea was behind GPL was that, hey, open source is important. Uh, we must do open source. In fact, we force you to do open source. If you use our code, you must also open source your code, right? And then AGPL was evolution of that to say, hey, also on the network, same thing. And then the MongoDB SSPL is saying the same, is extending that to say, hey, if you run it as service, same thing, right? Uh, but think about what they are really doing practically. Like what are the practical consequences of this? is that in some sense, they're dissuading others who have not contributed from, you know, leeching off it in, in some sense, right? Um, and I think that's the direction that Commons Close and SSPL um, are, are all going. I, I recall we, we had Joseph Jacks on the show OSS Capital a couple of weeks back, and we asked him about Commons Clause because uh, drafted by Heather Meeker, she's part of OSS Capital, so I'm sure you uh, know her as well. And one thing that he said about it is this is he sees it as a stepping stone or as an effort in a specific direction and that there are things that you said there's necessary evolution that has to happen for the greater open source community to continue to uh, st not strive so much, but thrive. Right. And so uh, I'm happy to have this conversation. I've learned a lot here, Manish. Thanks so much for for coming on. Mm -hmm. Um and Thanks just continuing to talk about these things. I know it's the kind of the nitty gritty licensing, not the most you know, kind of a dry topic, but there's so many facets to these decisions and uh, the implications of changing a license, picking a license. They're just massive. And we're definitely living in a brave new world where we're trying to figure this out together. So including a world with big numbers. I mean, we've seen the headlines on changelaw.com this week in the news feed, you know, billion dollar valuations, multi hundreds of millions of dollars invested into, you know, new companies or companies that are now unicorns, HashiCorp being an open core model type company that's just taken on, you know, a new round of gigantic funding. So there's clearly lots of money at play here, you know, and it's a new world for open source every single day. So where do we go from here? I mean, clearly we've had a great conversation that's led from not only DGRAPH as a tech and how it applies, Graph databases 101 on through how they can be used. You're clearly super smart. 
you've had to relicense, you've been through a journey. What do you suggest maybe the next step? Maybe not here today because we're, we're getting out of time, but where, what are some suggestions for you to continue this conversation in ways that are meaningful, that can get to meaningful change? Do we have a conference about it? Do we do a sustain like unconference or just kind of a gathering? How can this best be approached by the right people in ways that are not vicious and attacking, but in ways that are meant to actually get to change? What do you suggest? I think it's a, it's a tough conversation. It's a conversation um, of ideals versus practicality. Um, it, it would require flexibility from uh, the from the maintainers or the people in charge at OSI to think through some of the um, practical considerations of running an open source company in today's environment. Um, and I think uh, it would definitely need a, a bigger dialogue. I feel, uh, you know, if MongoDB's SSPL gets approved by OSI, that would be probably a, a great outcome of, of this and uh, can easily see a bunch of other companies jumping onto that bandwagon. Um, if it gets rejected, then um, other open source companies are going to keep coming up with something new, which might work. Uh, there's definitely a need for a change here. Um, I think that much is clear. Well, let's close the show with anything, uh, anything for you. I mean, I know you got uh, lots of stuff happening. We've obviously covered quite, quite a bit of ground, but if people are following along with you, where do they go? What do they do? Do you have anything to announce here at the close of the show? Uh, yeah, I do want to announce something. I think, uh, you know, we are doing, uh, we are solving really complex problems at dgraph and we also have Badger, both written purely in Go, both open source. Uh, if you want to help us and if you want to uh, experience these challenging uh, uh, problems, uh, come join us. Um, you can go to https.dgraph.io and see some of the job openings. We are looking for backend engineers, so uh, apply. Manish, thank you so much for sharing not only your story, but your wisdom here. I know it's a tough subject and going on record because we do have an awesome transcript for this show. Thank you, Alexander, for being so awesome and all the contributors out there who help us to make them like uh, um, like our friends who mentioned at the top of the show, make our, our shows less unintelligible and more intelligible, uh, so to speak. Um, so, I mean, I know it's tough to be on record about very tough subjects and we just appreciate your courage to share how you feel and the willingness to continue to go on the road, uh, even when it's bumpy. And thank you for, uh, thank you for sharing your time with us. Thanks for having me guys. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Change Log. If you enjoyed this show, do us a favor: go into iTunes or Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating or a review. Go into Overcast and favorite it, tweet a link to it, share it with a friend. And of course, I want to thank our awesome sponsors and partners: Rollbar, Digital Ocean, Algolia, and GoCD. Also, thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. And we're able to move fast around here and fix things because of Rollbar. Check them out at robot.com and we're hosted on Leno Cloud Servers at Leno.com slash changelog. Support this show. This episode was hosted by myself, Alex Dekoviak, and Jared Santo. Editing was by Tim Smith. 
in the mix and master also by tim smith music is by the ever awesome breakmaster cylinder and if you want to hear more episodes like this subscribe to our master feed at changelaw.com master or go into your podcast app and search for changelaw master you'll find it subscribe get all of our shows as well as some extras that only hit the master feed thanks for tuning in we'll see you soon